You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. This morning we're looking at chapter 17, verses 19 through 34. You'll find this on page 926 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 17, verses 19 through 34, page 926. Hear the word of God. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, as we've seen before, Athens was the most important cultural center in the entire Roman Empire. Not only was it inhabited by the best and the brightest, but it was also full of idols. So the greatest center of learning could not deliver them from spiritual darkness. For all of their sophistication, those Athenians were ignorant of the true God. 
Everywhere Paul looked, apparently, he saw evidence of their pagan idols. And the psalmist teaches us that they don't speak or see, they don't hear or smell or feel or walk or talk. In other words, it's a poetic way of saying they're dead. They're senseless, worthless, lifeless gods invented by the corruption of human imagination. And David confirms that those who make them become like them. So do all of those who trust in them, Psalm 115. Which means that idolaters are senseless. They're blind to invisible, eternal things. They have no spiritual life. And to use the phrase of the apostle, they're dead even while they live. And this was the reason why God sent Israel into exile. Jeremiah refers to their idolatry in the passage that was read because the first and the foremost commandment strictly forbids the sin of idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Those words before me are significant because of course the Lord knows everything and he sees all things, but he takes special notice of And he is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. He made us physically to live in the light and heat of the sun. And you take away that sun and we grow sick and we die. And he made us spiritually to live in the light and heat of his word. And you take away this word and we get sick and we die. And for generations, the Gentile world lived in darkness without restraint Because God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There's nothing new under the sun. You think today is corrupt? Every age is corrupt. It's an awful judgment to be given over to oneself and to live in darkness. Often a person doesn't even know he's been given over because it's a spiritual judgment. As far as the unbeliever is concerned, as long as his grain and wine abound, he's happy. All he wants are the comforts of this world. There's no interest in the things of the next world. Doesn't even believe there is a next world. And this is the way of the idolater. It is idolatrous to desire lesser goods with no interest in the chief good. What are earthly comforts without God and without a good heart? What are they? Sinners who are given over say that life is good, even when they're under spiritual judgments, because the punishments of sin in this world can be inward, such as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections. And the lion's share of that danger is the fact that he has no idea that he is now under judgment. God removes his restraining grace And he leaves sinners to themselves. And hence, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, 
unaware of the peril. Traveling the broad road to destruction. That, were, that was the Athenian people. Very religious, but they weren't Christians. And after preaching in the synagogue and reasoning in the marketplace, Paul is taken to the Areopagus, and there he stands before the Athenian elite who asks him for an explanation. What are you preaching? And this was a privileged and influential group, eager to hear what he had to say. But I have to say, their interest in what he told them was for all the wrong reasons. We can be glad, at least, that they were willing to listen to his exposition. After all, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So these Athenians were at this point in a position to have their eyes opened and their ears unstopped by the Holy Spirit. Maybe God would save them. Because there's no better position to be in than under the proclaimed word. I think the positioning is like those beggars outside the walls of Samaria when it was besieged by the Assyrians. You remember that story? They were starving. And if they stayed there, they would certainly perish. But if they go to the Assyrian army, they'd probably get killed, but there's a possibility of their salvation. Jonathan Edwards says, a possibility of being saved is preferred to a certainty of perishing. I think that's an understatement. If the Athenians never listened, they would perish. But if they listened, they just might be saved. And Paul was well aware of this, so he would try to persuade them and leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were motivated by curiosity. Yes, there was no spiritual interest. They spent their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. And here was this eccentric Jew teaching things that were strange and new and fresh. It was novel. And for that reason, it was intriguing to them. They were fascinated, as you and I might be, at a circus. They were interested not because it was true, but because it was exciting. And the same lust for novelty, I believe, plagues our culture, doesn't it? This restless discontent, which is widespread for things that are new, whether it has to do with a job or a spouse or a church, people are dissatisfied. Seeking something new, something better, someone more exciting. The story is told of a king who was suffering from a very painful ailment, and his advisor told him that the only cure for him was to find a contented man get his shirt, and wear it night and day. So the royal messengers were dispatched throughout the kingdom in search of such a man and with orders to bring back his shirt. Months passed, and after a thorough search of the country, the messengers finally returned, but they did so without the shirt. Crestfallen, the king asked, did you not find at least one contented man in all of my kingdom? Yes, O king, 
We did find one, they replied, and all of your realm, we found just one. Then why did you not bring back his shirt, the king demanded. Sire, the man had no shirt. Contentment is a rare jewel. It doesn't come easy. It has to be learned. It's not found in the absence of pain and suffering. It's found only in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's true contentment. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. True contentment, dear friends, is a gift of God's grace, and there are so many who will never be satisfied. Solomon says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. You know something? Death devours millions, and death is never full. Sin is insatiable, and it always craves more. And as long as man seeks satisfaction in earthly things, he will never find it. It is said of Alexander the Great, the general of that Greek army, that he wept when he had conquered the entire known world because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. He then thought that his life was pointless. You see, my friends, Jesus alone is sufficient for the soul, and he alone satisfies that longing for the eternal. And he says to us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So Paul is going to take advantage of Athenian curiosity to preach Christ. He told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, most of those Athenians would soon become disinterested and they would move on. There would be no conviction of sin, no turning to God, no hunger for Christ. It was merely the excitement of innovation. And I wonder how many today listen to sermons simply because they're curious. What are these preachers talking about? True, some of them might be awakened by the Spirit and be born from above, their eyes opened, their ears unstopped, their hearts strangely warmed. They just might become new creatures in Christ. God is sovereign. He makes up his mind. And I would say, sadly, tragically, the majority of those who are curious will likely perish because Jesus even said the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few, relatively few. So Paul here was willing to preach and to endure anything if it meant saving some. There he was, standing in the Areopagus, speaking to the elite of Greece, and it was a pagan audience, and these people had no knowledge of Jesus. So Paul's preaching here, you'll notice, was different from that which he declared in the synagogues. Among the Jews, what he was doing was trying to persuade them of prophecies that were fulfilled. They knew the Old Testament. 
Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, the promised seed of the woman, but among pagans and our members who labor so faithfully in young life on the campuses of our schools, among pagans, he had to labor among those who were ignorant of Scripture and his strategy had to be different. He had to start at square one. He had to begin with creation and providence, so he took his cue from one of their altars inscribed to the unknown God. The point of contact that he would use to capitalize on their religiosity, because you see, the Athenians themselves were willing to admit that there may be another God. We missed it. So they openly acknowledged their ignorance of the truth, and it was courteous for Paul to begin this way without first challenging their idolatry. You know that unknown God? I want to tell you about him. And in his sermon, he presented the truth of God in five different ways. First, he told them about the one and only creator of the universe. He's the one who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by hand. He's the creator. Number two, he identified this same creator as the sustainer of life. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He preserves and governs every creature made and every atom created. Third, he highlighted the fact that God reigns as ruler over all the peoples. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And in his providence, his purpose was for Gentiles to seek his face. That's why he put them on earth. To feel their way. To perhaps find him. But you see, mankind is so blind to spiritual things that he could never succeed. Job says they grope in the dark without light. Sin making it impossible for fallen man to find God apart from the Holy Spirit. Fourth, he underscored the imminence of the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. He's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Yes, he's transcendent. He's beyond all things. But he's imminent. He's close by each one of us. Even pagan writers realize that man's origin can be traced to God. He is the living and true God, and no man-made image can represent him. So fifth, Paul declared to his Athenian listeners not just that he's the creator, sustainer, ruler, an imminent God, but also the truth about God the judge. He's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, these pagan peoples sadly were ignorant regarding the truth about God and Christ and the final judgment. And God overlooked it. He didn't excuse it, but he didn't judge it then as it deserved. But now, because of the certainty of impending judgment, he commanded all people everywhere to repent. It's a call for everyone to turn from sin and to turn toward Jesus. That's repentance. 
It requires a change of mind and heart. It involves grief and hatred for sin. It also demands a sincere and humble trust in the crucified Jesus because it is in him and him only that God extends mercy to sinners. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That he extends mercy, sparing us from what we deserve? Because apart from Jesus, nobody can stand before this God in the judgment. And there are five features of that final judgment to which he refers in his sermon. Let's review them. First, he highlights the very fact of judgment. He will judge the world. It's absolutely certain. History will conclude with final judgment. And there are all kinds of people who scoff at this. The Athenians probably did. It's true in our day. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, where is the promise of his coming? I heard Christopher Hitchens on YouTube say that very thing. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But everyone without exception will stand before God at the end of time. As Paul told the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this is not the particular judgment each one of us faces at the moment of death. There is a difference, you know. When a person dies, his or her soul is then separated from the body and that's when the dust returns to the earth and the spirit to the God who gave it. And it's then that the soul is judged. It's either received into heaven or it's consigned to hell. And that's the particular judgment that every person undergoes at the moment of death. But Paul here is referring to the fact of the universal judgment of all people. At the consummation of the ages, the Lord will sit in judgment on all mankind. And we're told that John saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. On that great day, the entire human race will be assembled before the Lord. And this vast company will stand closed mouthed before his holy and august presence. And it will be a day of reckoning. And every person without exception will be called to account. That's the fact of judgment. Second, he referred to the time of judgment. He said he's fixed a day. Now notice he didn't specify the date or the time. No one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return because it's a secret thing. And the secret things belong to God and he's not revealed it to us. 
He did this in part that believers might not grow complacent. Not knowing we must watch and pray and be ever ready for the coming of the Lord. And we're forbidden to search boldly and curiously into God's secrets. We must never seek to pry into the hidden things as if they're trivial matters because God has good reason for everything he does and he has hidden the date and the time. It's enough for you and I to know that one day he's going to judge the world. And thus scripture exhorts you and I to be on the lookout, to be prepared, to stay awake, You must be ready, said Jesus, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That means living life in a state of expectancy, not anxiety. Expectancy. It's going to happen in a flash. Those who are careless and negligent will be like the foolish virgins whose lamps went out. And I think it's safe to say But the final judgment cannot be too far distant. Hebrews 10.37 tells us, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. He'll come to put an end to all the sufferings of his chosen people. And you and I are far closer today to that final reckoning than when it was written some 2,000 years ago. It was the great Chrysostom who said this, When you see an old man on crutches broken down and dried up. You know he can't possibly live much longer, even though you don't know the precise day that he'll die. Similarly, the world is, as it were, on crutches, somewhat broken down and dried up, and that means it cannot be long before Christ returns. I think he's right. James tells us we're living in the last days. John goes so far as to say this is the last hour. And wisdom tells us we should be striving to be faithful in devotion to Christ. So Paul talks about the fact of judgment, the time of judgment, and he mentions the executor of judgment, a man whom God has appointed. And the man is Jesus Christ, the God-man who will return to earth in glory. And mind you, on that day, no one is ever going to overlook or dispute the majesty of his great name. Christ the King will take his seat upon the throne and he'll begin the process. What a sight that's going to be. The Lamb who was slain in all of his regal splendor. He who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men will then begin to judge. He's the one who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He's the one who wore the crown of thorns and suffered the soldier's punches. He's the one who heard the taunt of his scoffers and endured the pain of crucifixion. And he's the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. But then forth, Paul mentions the scene of judgment. He says he'll judge the world in righteousness, and there is nothing in our experience that can adequately illustrate this point, the scene of final judgment. 
Neither eye nor ear nor mind can even imagine the great consummation. But you know something? The heart can be suitably affected by the representation of it in the Bible. That's why God revealed it. And we're told there in Scripture that the judge is going to descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And that deafening sound will be unlike anything you or I have ever heard. And so loud, so piercing will it be that by it, the dead will be raised. Graves will begin to swell. The earth will begin to heave. Tombs will burst open and then will rise every person who has ever drawn breath or had blood in their veins. Every person. And they'll be summoned from their graves to stand before the bar of God's justice and it will be a legal tribunal in which all the dead, great and small, will be judged. Vast multitudes, long dead, will stand side by side in the presence of the king. Great heavenly books will be opened and the solemn judgment will commence. And that process will not be for the benefit of the judge because he knows everything. No, that process will be designed to display before the whole assembled universe the equity of his judgment. He'll judge the world in righteousness. Every sin, every good work, think of it. Billions of anxious sinners waiting to hear their sentence from the bench. And upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, most of them will be condemned. Situated on the king's left, they'll be sentenced to hell with no possibility of parole. Depart from me, he'll say, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that horrific sentence will rend the hearts of millions. And when that awful declaration is made, there will be no more room for repentance. They'll stand dumbfounded, horrified, writhing, I think, in agony and despair. And mind you, no sound on earth can match the terrified shrieks of condemned sinners. All will be lost. They'll depart bearing the full weight of God's curse. But those on the king's right will be welcomed into heaven and eternal life. Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a joyful day that will be. And there will be surprises Many who considered themselves saints whose external piety was applauded by others will be surprised to find themselves in hell. Lord, Lord, did we not preach for you? Others who were poor and honest and often downcast by their own weaknesses and feared the worst will be surprised to be escorted into heaven. And the scene will be striking Neighbors separated from neighbors, friends separated from friends, parents from children, husbands from wives. And you and I are going to be there. 
And I hope we will be on the right side of the throne. Fifth and finally and briefly, the proof of judgment. He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, the greatest miracle of all time serves as clear evidence that the judgment is coming. By raising Jesus from the dead, God gave a guarantee that all of us will give an account. And it proved that Christ's mission was real and that his messianic identity is true. And like a two-edged sword, the resurrection proves the blessedness of the saints. Isn't that true? It assures us that in the end, sincere believers are going to be raised up in glory. And no heart can conceive or mind imagine what that experience is going to be like. We who've trusted in Christ by his grace will be made like him. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's why God commands that all people everywhere should repent. He's giving us time and opportunity to prepare for the great day of the Lord. Because, my friends, it's on the horizon of history. And if you are in Christ, you can thank God for the refuge from that wrath that's coming. But if you are not in Christ, now is the day of salvation and don't miss the opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. What a gracious opportunity it is. May all repent and believe to the salvation of their souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing sermon that Paul preached in the Areopagus. It's sobering. And yet it's merciful in its warning. And we're grateful for the offers of forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus that you give us in the gospel. And we pray that all of us might trust in Christ to the salvation of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.